Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Before we start this week, I just wanted to let you know I'll be away for the next couple of weeks as I go visit my brother in the UK. Like a good French historian, though, we'll be popping over to Paris while I'm in the neighbourhood, and I'll be keeping an eye out for as much Merovingian stuff as I can find. Should be fun. And we'll be back with another episode on August 7th. Now, back to it. Last week, we filled in the gaps and talked about the new stalemate between the Merovingian kings, as well as the ongoing violence at the local level, as seen in the murder of Gregory's brother, Peter. This week will be, perhaps unsurprisingly, more of the same. Guntram and Chilperic continue to circle each other, each one unwilling to risk making that first move. As they do, life will go on, and we're going to cover the stories that appear as the kings are eyeing each other suspiciously, starting with two evil bishops and the intervention of the Pope in Gaul. It'll be another mix of violence, politics, and lessons about life under the middle Merovingians in episode 24 of Violent Pause. As I mentioned last week, Gregory has an odd fascination with telling us stories of evil men of the cloth. There are probably a few reasons for this. Moral outrage at their actions from a devout man, internal political squabbles in the church, Gregory just loving juicy stories, but whatever the reason, Gregory pulls exactly no punches when attacking clergy he feels have done wrong. A prime example of this is the story of the bishops Salonius and Sagittarius. Get ready for some harsh attacks on these men, because Gregory has some opinions. Both Salonius and Sagittarius were deacons who were elevated to bishoprics with the help of their benefactor, Bishop Nicetius of Lyon. Both of their new seats, Salonius in Embrun and Sagittarius in Gap, were under the Metropolitan See of Lyon, making them still the juniors of Nicetius. In Gregory's words, quote, They were no sooner raised to the episcopate than their new power went to their heads. With a sort of insane fury, they began to disgrace themselves in peculation, physical assaults, murders, adultery, and every crime in the calendar. End quote. Tell us how you really feel, Gregory. Am I right? Anyway, the two men soon became involved in some sort of dispute with Victor, Bishop of St. Paul Trois-Châteaux. On his birthday, Gregory alleges that the two evil bishops sent an armed mob to attack Victor. The men tore the bishop's clothes off, beat his servants, stole the silver cutlery that was being used for the birthday feast, and... All of the furnishings. When King Guntram heard of this, he called a council in Lyon. The assembled bishops at this council, including their patron Nicetius, found the pair guilty and deposed them from their bishoprics. But this is where the story gets even more interesting. Knowing that the king apparently had a bit of a soft spot for them, 
the two former bishops begged to be allowed to take their case to the Pope in Rome. This was a bit of a wild request, as the Pope was considered a more senior figure, but was too far away to really affect the Gallic Church, which always solved its own disputes. The two should not have really been allowed to do this, but it appears they were right about Guntram's soft spot, and he allowed them to press their case in Rome. Giving them a letter of introduction, so that the Pope could be sure that they were who they said they were, Guntram sent them off to plead their case. Now the position of the Pope at this point in history is complicated. Very complicated in fact, so stay with me as we break it down. In the early years of the church, there were four bishops who were considered more important than the others. The bishops of Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome. The Pope had always had a special prestige above the others as the successor of St. Peter, but he was not above them in the way that the modern Pope is in the Catholic Church. Now, this delicate balance was even more complicated by politics. The East, especially Alexandria, was a hotbed of religious debate and churned out more than one theological position that threatened to tear the Christian world apart, Arianism being one such example. The Patriarch of Constantinople was also a major political figure due to his presence next to the Eastern Roman court, and this often led to conflict. Most importantly for us, however, was that Rome was often the odd man out, as the other three all sat in the east, the main power base of the late Roman and then Eastern Roman states. Rome itself had even been out of Roman control after the fall of the Western Empire in 476, though it had been reconquered by Justinian at the time of our story. These political differences are important to note, They led to two key facts. The Pope in Rome was more independently minded due to his position as the successor of St. Peter, and due to his position on the unstable and volatile frontier of Roman power, at least by our time. Italy was a battlefield in this period, and the Pope was often concerned by worldly affairs, and could often fall under the influence of emperors or even important nobles. On top of this, the Pope was the only one of the four that was in the West, meaning that all Western bishops looked to him for guidance. This unique situation would lead to the rise of independently powerful Popes, and eventually the East-West Schism of 1054, which split the Eastern Orthodox faith from the Western Catholic faith. Knowing the Pope's potentially powerful but delicate position is important for this story, because once Salonius and Sagittarius pled their case to the Pope, he ordered that they be reinstated to their positions. Now, why would he do this if it seems so obvious that they were guilty? Well, there is always the possibility they lied effectively, or the possibility that Gregory is overstating their crimes. But there is also deeper politics at play. Since the Pope's city, Rome, was always on the frontier between the Romans and the invading Lombards, 
he was always in danger of falling into barbarian hands. Not only might these Lombard kings seek to control him, but any destruction of his city or its lands would chip away at his prestige and importance. After all, Pope Leo I had turned away Attila the Hun with only his moral authority. The popes of this period couldn't even deal with a few Lombards. On top of this, Rome was a half-deserted ruin at this point, a pale shadow of its former glory. The more it sank into obscurity as a relic of a bygone age, the more it dragged down the Pope's authority with it. The only protection he had from this fate was the Emperor in Constantinople, so he needed to maintain the Emperor's attention at all costs. But the Emperor was off dealing with crisis after crisis closer to home. Why should he divert much-needed resources into the sinkhole that was Italian defence? Ever since Justinian's reconquest, the Italian peninsula had been a massive drain on imperial finances and manpower. Well, one of the main reasons he did this was the Pope and the influence he held over the West. If the Emperor wanted to continue to wield his soft power in the West, he needed the Pope on his side. So, in order to maintain the Emperor's fickle attention, the Pope needed to demonstrate his ongoing authority over the Western churches, and knowingly or unknowingly, Salonius and Sagittarius had given him the ability to do just that. Overriding the Council of Bishops was a demonstration of the Pope's power, and a highly symbolic one. Pope John III, who was pontiff at this point, probably didn't actually care about this local dispute. It wasn't even of a religious nature, really. But it gave him this opportunity to showcase his influence, so he seized it. Now a quick pause here, because that was a long train to follow. When people talk about this period of European history, the so-called Dark Ages, they often talk about it as a comparatively simple time. After all, Roman politics is a constantly shifting quagmire, and medieval politics is a hellscape of trying to remember who is related to who and what overlapping rights have to be fulfilled. But, as we just saw, there are incredibly complicated and subtle political games that are always being played. No period of history is free from complexities, not even this one. Even those early kings like Clovis and Clothar, who you might think took what they wanted and cut through the rest, were still playing complex diplomatic and political games. The Dark Ages may have been dark, but plenty goes on in the shadows. And speaking of shadows, Salonius and Sagittarius, now with the Pope's backing, return to Gaul and triumphantly return to their positions as bishops. Guntram acquiesced to the Pope's ruling, though this might have been what he wanted all along. But Gregory was not happy. He writes that, despite their ordeal and their apology to Victor, the bishop they had wronged, they had not learnt a single thing and immediately went back to their evil ways. 
Now at this point, I might be tempted to reflect with you on Gregory's obvious personal bias, as we have before and will do in the future. But here, I can kind of see his point. During the battles between Mummelus and the Lombards, which we've already discussed, these two bishops apparently armed themselves and fought and even killed men. Now, their lands were being threatened, but this sort of behaviour was not acceptable at the time. Later, the Carolingians would turn the Gallic Church into a militarist arm of their imperial expansion, but at this point, churchmen were meant to be more like Pope Leo or St. Martin, peaceful men who had learnt to resolve conflict with moral arguments and diplomacy. With this in mind, I can see why Gregory despises them so. He idolised St. Martin, and strove to embody this moral righteousness in all of his actions. To see men like this sharing his authority must have enraged him. Now the story of Salonius and Sagittarius continues for a while, revealing a little about the breaking down of the independence of the church with it. Once they were back in their positions, it wasn't too long before they were hauled back in front of Guntram yet again, this time accused of physically attacking some of their own congregation with wooden clubs. Upon their arrival at Guntram's court, however, they were refused an audience with the king. Apparently, Guntram felt that he couldn't receive them until their case had been decided. For whatever reason, Sagittarius took offence to this and made a colossally stupid mistake. He began to badmouth Guntram's wife, Ostrichild, even going so far as to imply that their sons, who were still alive at this point, should not be allowed to inherit due to their mother's low birth. This was dumb. Guntram soon caught word of it and in a predictable fit of rage, stripped the two bishops of all of their possessions and titles, and sent them away to monasteries to be kept under armed guard. Now, this causes a bit of a tough situation for our friend Gregory. He hates these men, and he admires Guntram, but deposing two bishops without trial and banishing them in a fit of hurt feelings, that is problematic. Just think of the delicacy with which Chilperic handled the trial of Praetex Tartus. Guntram can't just do this. It completely undermines the independence of the church. Luckily for Gregory, though unluckily for Guntram, his sons began to fall ill soon after this. This gave some of Guntram's advisors an opportunity to suggest that it was due to his rough handling of the bishops encouraging him to release them and allow them to return to their positions. He agreed, though seemingly on the condition that they had to pray for his son's souls. This is another example of the sometimes transactional nature prayer took on amongst the Merovingian kings, as we saw with Clothar employing Radigund to pray for his soul. Freed from imprisonment, Salonius and Sagittarius returned to their positions yet again, and this time they kept up appearances for a while. But, Gregory informs us, 
that they soon returned to feasting and adultery. Because, of course they did. Later, they would be condemned by yet another church council, though this time for treason, and banished, left to wander the earth penniless. The fact that it was treason, rather than any other accusation, that took these two men down shows that the independence of the church, so openly undermined by Guntram, was already starting to give. Now, with that wrapped up, let's leave the church behind for a while and talk about some war. First up is the return of an old friend for a quick appearance. Everyone's favourite cowardly noble, Guntram Boso. Guntram Boso pops up only for a couple of chapters here, but as always, it's an interesting time. After seemingly hiding out for a while after the fall of Merivec, Guntram Boso suddenly appears in Tour with a small band of armed men. He then enters the church and forcibly removes his daughters, who had been left there for safekeeping, and marched on to Poitiers. There he was met by Enodius, the Count of the City. Both Enodius and Poitiers had declared for Childebert, so Guntram Boso, probably feeling that his daughters would be safer there in the Church of St. Hilary than in Tours, stashed them once again, and then left to go join Childebert's newly strengthened court in the east. On his way east, however, he was stopped by one of Chilperic's nobles, a man named Dragolin. We won't go into Dragolin's sordid backstory, but suffice to say, Gregory was not a fan of his, and he doesn't seem to have been a very good man. He attacked Guntramboso's small force, which held him off for the moment. But then something interesting happened. Gregory records that Guntramboso sent Dragolin a message, saying that Dragolin should know that they had a pact, and Guntramboso just needed to go on his way. Dragolin could take whatever else they had. Dragolin responded, quote, You see this rope? I have used it to tie up quite a few other culprits, whom I have handed over to the king. Today, I shall tie up Guntramboso with it, and hand him over in his turn. End quote. This interaction is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, Guntramboso's words imply a sort of understanding with Dragolin. Why Guntramboso would have a pre-existing arrangement with one of Chilperic's nobles is unclear, but there is an obvious answer. The betrayal of Merivec. Gregory has already implied that Guntramboso might have had something to do with this, and Draglin might have been a part of the deal between Guntramboso and Fredegund. Again, there is no outright statement from Gregory, but he's leaving enough suggestive clues for the reader. Second, however, is Dragolin's response. The fact that there was some kind of deal going on, but that he was willing to break with that deal to curry favour with the king, shows the complex set of alliances and favours that are happening in this period. If we take Gregory's hints and assume the deal was between Fredegund and Guntramboso, Dragolin is clearly acting off the knowledge that while the Queen is willing to deal with Guntramboso, Chilperic 
still hates his guts for the death of his son. There are multiple factions vying for power here. No wonder this instability couldn't be stamped out. After their exchange, Draglin decided time was up and he charged the small band with his men. Gregory records that Guntram Boso prayed to St. Martin for salvation, and Dragolin's lance suddenly shattered and his sword fell to the ground, allowing Guntram Boso to shove a pike into his neck and escape capture once again. Of course, the story is likely embellished by Gregory, especially at the end there, but errant bands of nobles riding around seeking to capture and trade each other for influence shows just how lawless things are starting to get. Now, enough petty squabbles, it's time for some conquest to get back into our narrative. Before we wrap up this week, let's discuss the events happening to Chilperic. Both senior Merovingians, Chilperic and Guntram, were kind of stuck. They couldn't move against each other, so they had to find other outlets for their thirsty armies. Chilperic, for arguably the first time in his reign, decided to do some good old-fashioned conquering to appease the people, just like Dad used to do. Unfortunately, Chilperic and his generals weren't quite as competent as Clothar and the Franks used to be. Last week, I mentioned the disputes between the Breton chieftains briefly. Well, one of them, a man named Warrock, had tried to strengthen his position by seizing some lands traditionally held by the Franks. In this case, the city of Vaughan. Chilperic decided this was the perfect opportunity to let off some steam and remind his smaller neighbours that the Franks were still the big dogs on the block. He ordered the men of Touraine, Poitou, the Bosson, Men, and Anjou to form an army and march into Brittany. This again shows that the Frankish tribal armies of old were being replaced by ad hoc peasant levies, though still buttressed by a core of Frankish elite. This peasant army, however, did not prove intimidating to Warrock, despite their numbers. He and his men, hardened by the constant fighting and tough conditions of Brittany, slipped out and ambushed a group of Saxons who were fighting for Chilperic, killing many of them. Then, surprisingly, only three days after this altercation, and without a major engagement, Chilperic chose to come to terms with Warrock, allowing the chieftain to keep Vaughn as long as he paid tribute and acknowledged Chilperic's suzerainty, something the man would break as soon as Chilperic was gone. Real anticlimax, right? Well, this is our first real taste of how far Frankish armies had fallen by this point, and it won't be our last. Gregory doesn't come out and say it, but the way he lays out the story shows that he is aware of just how embarrassing this should have been for Chilperic. Instead of a grand conquest, Chilperic got very little, and instead he took his anger out on Tour once again, punishing the city for apparently not coming to his aid. Gregory, of course, defends his city, 
claiming it was not customary for the people of Tur to be eligible for public service. But either way, this strikes me as a very pathetic moment for Chilperic. Granted, he had picked a tough nut to crack. There's a reason Clovis and Clothar had left the Bretons largely to themselves. But still, turned away by one measly chieftain? For shame. With his ancestors watching, Chilperic would return home and throw his weight around in different ways, by raising taxes and building new amphitheatres in obvious vanity projects. But we'll leave the consequences of those decisions for later. For this week, we've seen yet again how violence and instability were inherent to the Merovingian state in this period. The civil wars may have paused, but it was certainly proving to be a violent pause. There was simply not enough control to be found. The system was flawed, and it'll be a little while before we see someone try to do something about it, and even longer before someone actually succeeds. Either way, I'll be back in three weeks to pick up our story again. See you then.